You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And Ryan O. And this is Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to your favorite consumable psychology podcast. I'm I'm laughing because Ryan was <laughs> trying to count down with me to mess me up before we started. So <laughs> it's just, always having fun. Yep. All right. Um. One. A uh, couple quick housekeeping things I've got is that if you are seeing this, uh, this is uh, child de- episode 107, child development part two. We're talking largely about birth and the first two years, at least with respect to physical development. However, at part one, when this is released, if you have one of those podcast apps that automatically downloads the initial release what happened was i accidentally titled it exactly the same as the previous episode now it was the uh, updated episode the audio was all there everything was correct that's just the title was wrong that has been fixed but it's possible that because there are those apps that just auto download whatever the first version is it doesn't refresh when i change it so if you have an a podcast app that simply streams the episode, then it will update as soon as I updated it, which was two hour, an hour actually after it came out. But yeah. otherwise, you may have seen a different title, and I apologize. We forgive you as a <laughs> local community, if I could speak for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Okay. One other quick thing, actually, two other quick things. One is that, as we have mentioned before, you can listen to us on smart speakers or on SoundCloud, Spotify, tune in, Spreaker. Pod search, uh, all the places. Um, Alexa, like I said, the smart speakers. Yeah, Alexa, Google um, Home, Sonos, whatever um, the Apple one is. I can't remember. Just like Apple iTunes, yeah, the Google Play and Google Podcasts, or all over those. So, so you can find us pretty much everywhere. And uh, if you know someone who is interested in listening to this but has a specific platform, we're hopefully on that platform. So, uh, go check us out there if you or send someone else there. However, it is convenient to do so. And lastly, we have announced before, but we have new Patreon levels. So if you are listening to this episode and you become a Patreon, you could also get a recording of Ryan and I um, doing a video recording as we record this episode. Yes. Uh, I'll run through them real quick. So we have the uh, Pop Psych Journeyman and the Journeyman slash Journeywoman uh, is access to the Patreon only content and our Discord server. What what? You can chat with us on a day to day basis. Um, the Pop Psych Apprentice is access to behind the scenes uh, and outtakes. Uh, we work on this weekly. I don't think there's been a slip up in this. The goal is weekly. Um, a bonus episode plus previous rewards. And then we have the Pop Psych Apprentice, which is our third level. Um, for this one, we have a little bit more on the bonus side. The Masters, Pop Psych Master. Um, we do a live stream monthly. So we're going to be starting those up. And then the sustainer and the advertiser levels basically help us get going. You can start to submit topics um, and maybe even be on the show as well. So check those out at patreon.com backslash WWD podcast. It's there. It started. It's going to be awesome. Sweet. And then, of course, and we'll mention this at the end, but if you have any comments, questions, concerns, or anything, we love hearing from you. Please write us at info at podcast. And then, of course, you can reach us on all the social media platforms at podcast. So reach out to us. We love hearing from people. We've been getting quite a bit more listener mail lately, which has been great, and, uh, and we're happy to read those and respond. So, all right. I think that's all I had for housekeeping. You have anything else before we jump into this? No, uh, I hope everyone's having an awesome day out there. 
Sweet. Agreed. All right. So let's just first recap what we discussed in part one of this. Uh, this is going to be talking about a different element of child development, and we'll build a little bit on what we discussed in the previous episode. However, it will also largely encompass new material. So we're not doing a whole lot of rehashing or um, necessary foundational work from that uh, other topic. All right. So as we discussed in the first part of this, um, there were a lot of things that occur during conception and pregnancy. There are essentially three different phases, depending on how you want to uh, quantify it. There's sort of the uh, the three trimesters. You've also got the um, the three phases of the the stages of the fetus as it starts off of a, as a zygote. So there's the germinal stage, the embryonic stage, and then the uh, fetal stage are some of the the the, so a way that you can classify this. Um, and then just that this is a period of trials and tribulations, it is really, there's a lot that can go wrong in this process. And of course, uh, there's a lot that can go right. Um, and then there's those uh, environmental factors, the teratogens were the things that are harmful and the benafogens are the things that are helpful. And just that we do start learning in the womb and and continue to develop quite a bit. Our brain really develops in the light, uh, latter part, but it's very critical that a lot of development of the brain takes place um, as much as possible in the womb. Um, that being said, babies who are born prematurely could go can experience normal development. It just requires uh, more support for them. So just a thing to know about what we discussed. Anyway, today we're going to be discussing birth and the first two years after birth. Um, this may be more of the first year due to the scope of this topic, um, and it's going to largely talk about the physical changes that occur, and we're not going to dip into as much the cognitive and behavioral changes that occur during this time, because otherwise this would be a two-hour episode, and we'll save that for a later time when we come back around to development, because we're just going to keep hitting on this over the years that we're doing this, I hope. Yeah. So you ready to jump in? Yes. Let's go ahead and do this. Let's right. begin with the end of pregnancy, beginning at the end. So beginning at the end would be birth, the right. process of producing offspring. So this can be in the form of an egg, a live birth, or marsupial. Yeah, just talking about the different types of animals that there are. Of course, as human beings, we have live births. Um, there are actually several different types of live births that can occur, but just that what birth is is just that process of producing offspring, which looks different across species. So with respect to those humans, the different ways that you can have a live birth are vaginal, natural, a scheduled cesarean, an unplanned cesarean, um, a vaginal birth after a C-section called a VBAC, induction, vacuum, forceps, home birth, and water birth. And so some of those refer more to the how the how the offspring exits the body, and some of them refer to the process by which we facilitate that exiting, if that makes sense. Yes. And so for the purpose of this episode, uh, and not making it about the thousand different ways that you uh, can have a baby, we'll summarize this with either vaginal births or C-sections, as most of them fall into one of the two categories. All right, cool. So with respect to vaginal births, essentially the baby is pushed out of the uterus through the birth canal and just exits the body in that way. This is usually the 38 to 41 weeks after pregnancy. That's how they will plan out when the due date is. And 
the vaginal birth is highly recommended unless there is a reason to do some other type of birth, as we mentioned, that really being the C-section type of birth. Especially if the woman is planning to have subsequent births to that birth, then the recommendation definitely is to have a vaginal birth if possible. There are reasons that that can't happen, but that's just the recommendation because it does make it easier down the road. Whereas if you have those C-sections, well, let's just get into C-sections. So for the cesarean sections or C-sections, it's recommended if a mother or the baby's life is in danger. So from my understanding, this could be something that like on the spot immediately could be suggested and implemented, right? Yep. Um, if Another reason maybe if you're having a lot of children, I don't know how much a lot is, but I'm assuming that's anywhere from like more than one to like eight or nine. I've heard of like eight or nine, right? Yeah, sure. As like a possibility. Uh, I cannot imagine what that's like. The I can't imagine what any of this is like. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Like, I kind of like, wish that I could. From any perspective, imagining eight or nine children, just like wow. Oh yeah, sure. I got you. I see what you're saying. <laughs> um, I don't know this next one. The baby is breech. Oh yeah. So um, normally the baby exits the womb with its head facing downward. So the head is the first thing to exit. Breech means that it's turned around in some capacity and that can be dangerous for trying to remove the baby. So it is sometimes recommended that they do a cesarean section to uh, help the baby exit the the womb if if it's flipped upside down, just to reduce any amount of risk to the baby and potentially to the mother. Okay. Um, Other reasons you might be engaging in like a cesarean section over vaginal birth is it could be necessary if genital genital diseases may be passed through to the baby at birth and especially if these things haven't been treated right it could also be if there's placenta problems if the mother has diabetes or high blood pressure the baby is large labor isn't processing stops or slows and then in some of all of this like cesarean sections uh the prevalence ranges dramatically from place to place yeah, it's interesting as you'd think that as a lot of those conditions are kind of human things, like the baby being large or the baby being breech, like that's just something that's going to happen sometimes. What's interesting is that cesarean sections don't map on an equal distribution. Uh, first of all, the United across, States... like country, cultures, etc.? Even across hospitals, but yes. Whoa. Yeah, the United okay. States tends to have a lot more cesarean sections. Some hospitals have way, way more. They're up at 90% or higher. Some hospitals are way, way lower, and that's just within the United States. But yes, you're absolutely right that in different cultures, they'll have different rates of this, and in different countries, they'll have different rates of this. It's it's really, really kind of all over the map, and there it, it becomes that there are reasons that people do this that are outside of the ones even that we listed. So for example, there might be a place where for some reason insurance more heavily incentivizes um, having a cesarean birth because they're more likely to reimburse for that if they see that as being safer than a vaginal birth or for whatever reason that there's a policy that that would be the case, in which case that hospital's probably more likely to recommend doing cesarean sections because there is a business element to doing this. Um, there are places that are more likely to have home births, water births, or uh, births that are assisted by some kind of um, birthing coach where that's not even really an option. And so in those cases, if there are a higher prevalence of people who are doing that, then that's there just will be a lower rate of cesarean sections. There will also be hospitals where they have an emphasis on on vaginal births. So it just it varies quite a bit around where these things are. Um, money will be a factor sometimes, but not always. Um, health will be a factor most of the time, but not always. And it's just a, a thing to keep in mind. 
All right, complications. So one of the complications specifically from having a cesarean section is that there is an average decrease in the um, the extent to which women are able to breastfeed from uh, having cesarean sections. There is also an average increase in children who um, become obese, who are born from a cesarean section. And there are also an increase in the average, I guess, likelihood that there's going to be a uterine rupture, the uterus will rupture after having a C-section. And so that with all of these complications, these are reasons one might decide not to have a C-section. But of course, sometimes that isn't a decision that you can make because of those factors we mentioned. If there is disease or health problems or the pregnancy is not progressing the way that it needs to, all of those things, if if the baby or the mother's life is in danger, any of those things are going to um, make it just be necessary. And it's actually not a guarantee. As I said, it's just an average increase. Um, it's not a guarantee that you'll have reduced breastfeeding. It's not a guarantee that that children are more likely to be obese. There's a ton of factors that go into things like obesity. So those are just things to consider um, that are a part of this. Um, another thing that happens is that after the first C-section, doctors are more likely to recommend C-sections because it becomes more difficult to have a vaginal birth. Again, you could have that uterine rupture if you try and have a vaginal birth after having had a C-section, which is extremely dangerous for the mother. It just makes it so that it's not impossible I've seen some places where they say after you've had your first C-section, you can't have a vaginal birth. You can. It's just generally not recommended. All right. So the next topic is then home births. There's some research that has suggested that home births can be recommended uh, for a couple of different reasons. That is that they're less expensive. There is apparently no increased danger for the mother or the child. It can be more comfortable for the family. I know that there's some cultural situations um, under yeah. which these are sometimes suggested or just like a part of the norm. Um, and then a decreased amount of invasive medical procedures as well. Yeah, and these are, I mean, there's some there's important caveats to the conditions under which this would be recommended. One is that you wouldn't recommend this if there's any real risk for complications, if there's any expected danger for the, for the mother or for the child, um, if there's any history of complications, if, again, the high blood pressure... Uh, or diabetes can complicate this. So it's important that everything be progressing normally and everyone appear to be healthy for that to be the recommended uh, way to go. And if that's the case, then there are some benefits to doing home births for those people for whom they would like to have that option. Really, as you said, that... And one of the things I hear the most often is just that if the home birth takes place, they're already home, they're already around family, they're already in a comfortable environment. So there, there are benefits to just having that they don't have to then do a transition from hospital to home or from whatever the birthing location to home. Those things can all, um, they're sort of all accounted for by the fact, by virtue of the fact that the baby was born at home. So they can sort of just already be in their comfortable element. Um, but again, it's just, it's not for everybody. It's not going to uh, be recommended all of the time. You just have to weigh all those considerations. Okay, so then there are these people that I sort of mentioned previously. These are called doulas, and these are uh, people who help guide and assist a woman through their pregnancy until they get to the birthing process. A doula, as I, re from my research, 
does not actually assist in the pre- in the birth itself, but they do assist in a lot of things like what to expect and how to let ch- test for benchmarks and helping the uh, mother as she's going through her pregnancy feel more comfortable and just preparing uh, the family for what life is going to be like once the child does arrive and preparing for eventualities, understanding like, are we going to move towards something like a home birth or a water birth, or is this something that really needs to be at a hospital? So they're just sort of really there to facilitate the pregnancy. But having that support has been very, very beneficial for some people. And there is some research to suggest that they can make pregnancy easier for people, especially those who are going through their first pregnancy or who are going through a complicated pregnancy. And maybe even everyone, it's, that's, that's just unclear. But they, they seem to be people who are just there for support. I'm including a link to uh, a TEDx talk that we know of, Ashley Greenwald. Yeah. That's around this sort of topic. She'd be a good one to actually have on the podcast at some point to talk about this because she did. she's done a lot of work as a doula, training doulas, stuff like that. So Yeah, it was part of her dissertation. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and some research has shown that women with doulas are more likely to report feeling empowered and supported through their pregnancy. And if that makes their life easier, then more power to them, you know, just that, that seems like one of those things where it's kind of a win-win situation. The people who want to be doulas, great. They get something out of it. The women who they're supporting, great. They get something out of it. A lot of these women will do it for free or for very cheap. And so this isn't really something where it's a big money grab. It's really just people supporting one another, which is kind of a cool thing. And it also impacts uh, postpartum depression. Is that right? That has been suggested by the research as well. Yep. Um, People who are the the mothers who are giving birth um, often report um, that they require fewer pain medications and other drugs like an epidural because they, again, feel that they have they feel they don't have that same amount of fear and anxiety. So they're able to be more relaxed during the process. That's not 100 percent, of course, but just that that has been reported. And then fewer pain medications and other drugs as well. Right. So now on to the characteristics of a newborn. So to set some context, you've spent about uh, 266 days in this very dim, nearly pitch black uh, lighting situation. Sounds are muffled. There's no direct uh, touching or interacting, right, that you've experienced. And what was it? William James, 1890, quoted as one great blooming buzzing confusion. Yep, as a quote frequently used. Yeah, the baby has had the capability to interact with sight and sound through the latter part of that pregnancy, but not by a lot. So they, although they have received some amount of stimulation, they have already started learning through some of that stimulation to an extent. Um, they're not going to remember any of it, but they do come out prepared to interact with the world a little bit, but it's going to be drastically different from the environment they were just in <laughs> by a lot. <laughs> so his description is not entirely accurate. The neonate, which is just a term for essentially someone who's very new to something, but in this case more relevant to a an infant, uh, they do come equipped with many ready responses to environmental stimuli, both voluntary and instinctual or reflexive. And it's actually important because we use those involuntary responses to test for basic normal responses to the world to ensure that the baby comes out and is prepared to thrive in their new environment. All right. Immediately, they'll want to do an APGAR test. That is appearance, pulse, grimace, uh, which is a reflex activity, looking at muscle tone and respiration. 
And the 10 points is a perfect score, up to two points per item, zero if it's not observed or extremely poor, one if it's slow or weak or poor, and then two if it is adequate. So it's administered five minutes after birth at most, like it can't go past this, correct? They don't, yeah, they generally won't want to administer it any later. It's as soon as the baby's out, they're going to start checking for these things. It's a really fast little assessment, but all of those things will tell them how well the baby is doing. And again, the APGAR stands for Appearance, Pulse, Grimace, Activity, and Respiration. And just to make sure, <laughs> respiration is pretty key there, that yeah. the baby is is doing all the things it needs to do. And if any of those things are below a two, and I mean, below one, there might be some reason for that, but are below a two, then they immediately might want to take some action. Now, they also do a Brazelton Neonatal Behavioral Assessment Scale, this NBAS, as it's acronymed, uh, which examines 46 behaviors, including 20 reflexes. And I'm going to let you take this one, Abraham. Sure. So some of the reflexes that they're going to look for in this one, and this one's just more thorough. It does take longer to administer, but they're going to look for um, breathing patterns specifically. So they're going to look for a regular breathing pattern, hiccups, sneezing, and thrashing if the airway is covered. This sounds kind of cruel, but what they'll do is they'll just block the airway and see that if they do block the airway, the baby should have an immediate response of, ah, clear my airway. I'm trying to breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, hey, buddy, get your hand off my face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of thing. Uh, so they they are immediately going to actually test for some of these sort of threat responses, if you will, from the baby, because those are really critically important to if something shows up that would potentially harm the baby, that they're going to have an instinctual reflex to get out of that. And that will be a warning to the mother or anybody else who's watching the infant that they need to immediately jump in if the baby's crying or thrashing or doing anything else. Um, Another one they will look at is body temperature. So they might allow the baby to become cold to ensure that they shiver. They'll also do this tucking response when they're cold. So they'll sort of bring their limbs in and sort of, we do this when we get cold, you know. Um, And then they'll also cry when they're cold. They'll want to test for that sucking response. There's this, uh, it's called rooting. They're going to sort of open their mouth looking around for a nipple or something. They should have a swallowing reflex, which is actually critically important because there are a lot of infants not like a huge proportion, but this does happen reg- regularly enough that there are entire divisions of people whose job it is to facilitate this who will not swallow appropriately for whatever reason. And so they actually have to then teach them how to swallow with practice, with you know very, very small amounts of things. It's worth a whole discussion going into that, but yeah. So a quick note also on the rooting reflex. I saw some research presented at the Nevada chapter a few years ago of behavior analysis where someone was looking at the, there's a certain chemical level that is reached due to the urine that's produced by the uh, baby while in the womb that starts to trigger that rooting reflex. Huh, that's super interesting. It's like a really, really cool example of like the way that your environment interacts at the chemical biological level and like they actually identified uh that mechanism um i don't remember exactly what it was um i'm not a i failed chemistry let's put it that way i didn't (laughs) fail but i wasn't good at it okay (laughs) that's super interesting though um cool thanks for adding that um another one to look at with this is that they do spit up and that they cry when they haven't eaten for a while. So you would presume that they're hungry. Um, Usually they eat on on a pretty consistent schedule. So if they don't cry when they're hungry, that can be something to be on the lookout for. Um, There's something that's also called a Moro reflex. And this is that if someone strikes or disturbs the surface on which the baby lays, so if they're on a flat table, for example, 
then the newborn, the infant, will fling their arms and legs out and then bring them to their chest and cry. So what they'll do is they'll put them on a table and they'll rattle it, and the baby will fling their arms out initially as if they were falling, and then they'll tuck themselves in, and that's just a, a reflex that they want to look for. There's this swimming reflex, which isn't actually swimming, but what they'll do is they'll hold them horizontally, sort of like a Superman pose. And what the baby should naturally do is their arms and legs will go out like they were doing like a swimming sort of motion. I want to be clear that we're not recommending and the recommendation in this test is not to actually throw your baby in a pool to see if it will swim. Uh, They don't have the muscle coordination for that sort of thing yet. And it's very dangerous. This is really just holding them in the air or at least balancing them so that their belly is sort of sitting on a surface and then they'll move their arms and legs around, which are not touching that surface as if in sort of a swimming motion. Yeah, and these things are done by the medical professionals yes. uh, right afterwards, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, then there's a stepping reflex. So obviously a newborn infant can't walk very easily, if at all. I don't think anyone has ever done this yet, but unless you're unless you're a baby deer. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> or a baby giraffe. Or a baby giraffe, there you go. Um, but they'll when they position the baby upright with their feet against the surface, they will actually imitate a walking motion. The baby's like, hey, this is fun. I want to do more of this. Which is a side note. I saw a baby giraffe just coincidentally, ex- accidentally, like 20 minutes after its birth and it was walking around. And I was like, this is not real because I've heard about it. But like, apparently that's, it's just immediate. Yeah. Just out of the birth and out of the canal and just starts walking around. <laughs> yeah. Humans have not had any evolutionary pressure to make us produce babies that are more well-equipped to deal with the world because we are apparently yeah. so good at caregiving that we don't need to be, which is kind of impressive, but Yes, we are. Also really scary at the same time. Yes, right? we are pretty pathetic yeah. as infants. So so when the AI robots rise, we may be in, we may be in trouble. <laughs> sure. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, then there's the, uh, the palmer grasping, uh, and this is basically what it sounds like. If you touch the palm of a baby's hand, they'll close their hand on it. It's very cute. They have the little tiny fingers. So a lot of times what parents will like to do is touch the palm, and then they'll grab onto their finger. Um, and they're sort of holding on to it. It's it's pretty cute. So interesting tidbit. Babies are legally blind, which means that they're not good at driving. Oh, and for many other reasons, they're not good at driving. <laughs> <laughs> and this means that uh, they can typically see between 4 and 30 inches away from their face. That's 10 to 75 centimeters. That's right. Yeah, we actually have to learn to see. This is a developmental milestone we go through is that as our eyes observe and take in visual stimuli from the world around us, um, our brain and our behavior develop with respect to those experiences such that we begin to recognize things and categorize them in a way. So we'll, you know, a baby will recognize 3D objects, they'll recognize depth and colors and that sort of thing. But it, it, it does take a while to, you have to experience those things in order to be able to react to them and, mm-hmm. and learn what they are and what they mean. And so um, initially their vision's not particularly great. Interestingly, as we talked about in our hearing episode, (laughs) plural, (laughs) because a substantial portion of hearing is a pretty mechanical process, which is to say that things will just rattle the hearing equipment in your ear pretty easily, again, without really having to learn or do anything. The part of the ear just kind of does what it does. Babies can actually respond pretty easily to general auditory stimulation. That being said, again, they have no reference for really how to interpret sounds yet. What they will have a little bit of reference for is maybe some of the sounds that they heard while they were in the womb. 
Um, but otherwise, words and music don't really sound like anything to a baby at first. They don't really have any mechanism by which they would detect patterns that would have a meaningful history to them. It would be as if someone just started speaking to you in a totally foreign language that didn't even sound like a language, like an alien language. It'd be like if an alien landed and they started speaking to you in something that wasn't like a language, I guess. I don't It's hard to come up with a good analogy for this. Right. <laughs> it's just to say that the baby has no reference for these things, so they don't have any meaning whatsoever. Even rhythmic patterned things that we recognize as music are just noise at this point. That being said, um, babies are pretty good at learning really quickly. So they will rapidly begin learning the patterns that they hear consistently. Speech patterns, musical patterns. Um, they'll pick up cadences and common speech sounds of whatever language they're hearing. They'll pick up on dynamics and where those dynamics occur and how they occur. Um, and so the, the sounds that they're exposed to early on um, will start to shape their listening for what those sounds are, what they mean, and how to use them. But this is just more evidence of why the Mozart effect, which is an episode we did a while back, is total crap. <laughs> to put it nicely. Yep. All right. So the last and most important point for this section is that babies begin adapting to the world and learning from experience instantly and then very rapidly after birth. They already were doing this in the womb. However, it accelerates tremendously after birth. Yeah, once they can actually interact with the world in a meaningful way. Yeah. So the next section is what babies do. So the first thing is is they gain weight. They lose several ounces the first day of life, but then they gain steadily for several months. Um, their birth weight should be doubling around four months and then tripling by the end of the first year. Yeah, it's important to note that if you, you'll notice very likely that the, the baby will uh, be losing weight initially just for a couple of days, which is totally normal as long as it's not an enormous amount of weight. They'll just lose a few ounces, and then they'll start gaining weight. So just don't be alarmed if if it's regular weight loss. You should be warned about this by a doctor, and of course, if you are worried, then check in with your doctor. We're not your doctor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just to know that is an expected change to lose a few ounces as they're sort of getting rid of that water weight and whatnot. You're also looking for rapidly changing percentiles um, in – in their weight, so those would be a warning sign. If they're not gaining weight as expected or too much, um, something something could be going on there. They do have a term that they talk about called failure to thrive, which is when you're not gaining weight as expected uh, for something to watch out with. And then the rapidly increasing side of this might be a sign of obesity. Both of these are pretty complicated, not necessarily or usually caused by specific direct action from the parents, um, although it can be, but we're learning more and more in science just how interconnected everything is, so it's really hard to source that out. At one point, we talked about this really carefully, right, on a different episode about like how the role of all these things coming together really doesn't mean it's going to be your fault. Do you remember that? Yes. What episode was yeah, that? Well, well, I mean, it was the first part of this one. We've mentioned it several times. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. It's been a while since we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> that's true not that you would know as a listener these these will come out one week apart but they were <laughs> recorded several weeks apart yeah just due to availability and travel and that sort of thing but it is very important to know that like there are going to be things like genetic factors like allergies like disease like um the general nutri nutritional quality of the food um and how that just works inside of the baby and then there is the availability so there it's an enormously complicated web of variables that uh, do affect things like th failure to thrive and obesity obviously 
if a parent were to completely starve their child, not feed them or feed them inadequate nutrition, then there's likely to see failure to thrive. Um, that's not going to be the case most of the time. Most of the time, um, parents are going to be doing the best that they can for their children, and they might under some circumstances still see failure to thrive because of other reasons. And the same is true for obesity, that an overabundance of supplying nutrition, feeding them too much, too regularly, or too densely caloric, too densely packed caloric foods can increase risk for child obesity. But there are also going to be those other factors, as I already mentioned, things like there might be diseases or there might be infections, there might be genetics, there might be certain issues with the way that metabolism is processing those things that it's just complicated and all of these things are related and interrelated. And so it's difficult to ever really say specifically if there is fault. I mean, there, there can be like a direct acting cause of those things happening, but a lot of times it's just this really complicated nuanced situation. And if you're ever concerned, of course, go see your doctor. Yes. So the next section is sleep. Uh, so remember we're under the, the subtitle of like what babies do. They sleep. Yes. They sleep a lot, uh, ranging do. from 9 to 19 hours per day. Um, this decreases rapidly to 9 to 15 hours after uh, the second year. And they spend most of their time dreaming. How do we know this? So, I mean, it's just really looking at what occurs during dreaming, which is the rapid eye movement stage. So during rapid eye movement, the um, the understanding is that that, correlates pretty much perfectly with dreaming that occurs. So um, babies spend a lot of their time in that stage of their sleep. Cool. Yeah. So if you ever look at your baby sleeping, they're probably thinking about you <laughs> <laughs> or something, maybe having an MR. I don't know. Just that they're, they're having some, some experience that's like a dream that might be a little bit different than what they'll have as they get older. Actually pretty much guaranteed that they are having a different one than what it'll be when they get older because our, our sleep constantly changes as we age and experience the world. So at the end of the first year, they're more likely to do most of their sleeping at night. Interestingly, sleeping in one long chunk of time is not really a natural thing that humans would do. It really seems to be that research suggests that this is a cultural thing that we have learned to do with sort of a work economic sort of schedule. Otherwise, we would sleep in these sort of short chunks of a few hours, then we would wake up, and then we'd sleep for a few hours, then we'd wake up. We'd be a little bit more like cats or any other animal. But yeah, so interest, it is interesting that sleep is something that we have really modified in ourselves, even though our biology hasn't really moved to accommodate those schedules that we tend to try to adopt. Have you ever tried to sleep on one of those schedules? So years Not ago in grad school, I found a few different, uh, I found like an infographic um, that was like of all the quote brilliant people in the world that have tried sleeping on different schedules. The reason I was interested in this in the first place is I read somewhere in Skinner's autobiography that he was trying to sleep on some sort of pattern that was like an hour and a half every like six out of every six hours awake, slept for an hour and a half or something like that. I think it was every four and a half. It was four and a half hours awake, an hour and a half sleep. And that cycle just kind of continued. I tried this for two weeks and I I thought I was going to (laughs) die. I I hurt so bad. Um, I just remember like, like not a headache, but I just felt like deficient in something and it was probably sleep deprivation right and i don't know have you ever tried something like that not specifically no oh man i was told you have to make it two weeks consistently and i tried so hard i would love to hear from somebody if they figure out how to master these sort of things also likely to be one of those things that's affected by many variables including 
genetics, diet, exercise experience. That's yeah, so. yeah. And I don't think I was like taking care of my body as I should have been back then. So um, just in the sense of like I was busy working and studying all the time. Sure. Um, but I, I was always fascinated of like could this – is this achievable and what effects would it have on my behavior, uh, productivity, happiness, et cetera? Well, we have a whole bunch of stuff on sleep coming down the – coming down the tubes for future episodes so <laughs> the tubes <laughs> tubes <laughs> <laughs> okay what's next so obviously sleep can be an enormous source of stress for families as it can be disruptive it can be off of their schedule it can be really difficult for them to manage or understand how to help them sleep um just i'll, I'll leave it at that for now it'll be something to tackle uh, down the road more but just that that can happen uh, so if the more prepared you are for that Hopefully, the more you can feel, I guess, supported in going into that situation. Co-sleeping is there's actually different types of co-sleeping. The first one is bed is uh, not bed sharing, which is all what a lot of people think of as co-sleeping, but it's just sleeping in the same room as the parents. This is extremely common in some cultures and extremely uncommon in others. And there's some advantages and disadvantages either way. So we're not taking a stance on this, just saying why people do it the way that they do it. One of the advantages to co-sleeping where you're just sharing the room is that the parents are immediately available if the baby is distressed. Um, the baby won't disturb other people in the house if it's some other room and it starts crying or needs some kind of help or food or whatever. Um, if there are other people in the house, then having it in the room means that they're more likely to be able to address that concern immediately. And the parents also might feel more at peace and able to sleep easier themselves if they know that they can quickly responds to their baby's needs and its safety. Um, a disadvantage to this idea of just sharing the room, this co-sleeping that is just room sharing, is that it can be more difficult to move the child to an independent sleeping arrangement once they get older than it would be if they started them in their own room to begin with. And the child may adjust to the parent's sleep schedule rather than the sleep schedule the parents would like the child to be on. And so it can be difficult then trying to transition the child to a different sleep schedule if they have gotten used to when their parents go to bed and wake up and the children need different amounts of sleep at different times. So those are just some considerations around that. The other type of co-sleeping is bed sharing. And this is what it sounds like when the baby sleeps in the parent's bed. Now, again, there are some advantages and disadvantages to this. One of the advantages is that there is a even more immediate response if there is some kind of distress. If the baby is hungry or distressed, most commonly, this is for breastfeeding purposes usually, then the mother is right there, doesn't even have to get up, kind of literally just like roll over and it's like, ah, here's food, you know. So it's pretty quick response. Disadvantage to this which is a substantial one, is the danger of smothering, which is accidentally rolling over the baby or it getting tangled up in the, in the blankets or anything like that. They're more than twice as likely to experience um, sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS in uh, bed sharing um, or to be injured by being rolled over. However, what's really important to know about this is this is also very cultural. Many cultures do actually practice bed sharing and actually have very, very low rates of sudden infant death syndrome. Uh, Japan is a common is a commonly cited example where bed sharing is very often used and there are very low rates. So they do something different to uh, manage that, but they, they do often share their bed anyway. All right. So the next uh, area under what babies are doing after birth is there's a huge 
uh, amount of development that's going on in the brain. So the brain is the fastest developing organ during the first two to four weeks after birth. In fact, the brain will continue to grow even if the body experiences slowed growth. Brains can begin to uh, specialize with experiences. So do you know what's going on in the cortex here? I mean, the various cortices will begin to shape immediately just to whatever responses and experiences they occur, and you'll start to see those specialized areas develop. So um, there's a lot of sort of, it's not exactly the tabula rasa blank slate model, but there Mm -hmm. is a lot of room for uh, specification that occurs um, in those early experiences. And real quick note on that. Uh, as you mentioned, the brain will continue to develop even if the body growth slows is, and I don't remember the term for this exactly, but the the genetics of a baby will prioritize brain growth, even in the face of things like malnutrition and failure to thrive. Whatever happens, the body will try and protect the brain first. Just kind of interesting adaptive uh, reaction we have. Yeah. Um, now, mouse models and research in that area suggest that the brain develops larger and more healthy when an infant receives a lot of love, support, and care from parents and caregivers. Uh, and then pruning is this process of cutting away unused or unneeded neurons and connections. Do you have anything more on this? Well, I mean, so this is that neurons that aren't being used are not will actually sort of get in the way. This is like, this is the people on the freeway who drive too slow and they screw up everyone else. Um, <laughs> that like those, those are what these neurons are doing. Like they don't really have any particular function. So the brain will do this natural pruning process, especially early on in life and throughout the teenage years where um, it, there's this programmed natural cell death that occurs. This actually occurs throughout the body, but in the brain specifically, uh, this programmed natural cell death where there are cells that are not being used. They need to be uh, removed and they just get metabolized by the body and reabsorbed. But it's just a, a natural process that actually makes us more efficient. So stimulation is critical, but does not need to be in the form of like complex items. Anything that can be manipulated or puzzled over um, or captures attention will stimulate young brains. Yeah, they don't need like a piano or a escape room level complicated thing. Like babies are often happy just playing with like a box or a ball or something like that. That's perfectly (laughs) fine as long as they can be doing something. Um, You like sit down with a harp and you're like, you're going to learn this harp. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Early excessive stress can damage developing brains. So little... Uh, too little excitement, uh, that's in air quotes, with some stress might also fail to facilitate development. What this means and like the like recipe for this is really unclear. Right. Now, another one's shaken baby syndrome often happens when trying to silence a baby. This can sever neuronal connections and lead to intellectual problems or uh, kill the baby. And you have some more on this, Abraham. Well, you know, one of the reasons that people shake their babies, as you mentioned, to try and silence it is that this actually, it can work to silence the baby and therefore will inadvertently reward the attempt to shake the baby by um, producing the result that is desired, which is an immediate cessation of that crying or fussing or whatever the problem is. Um, however, it, the the damage that is maybe not necessarily obvious as it occurs, but it can be really su- substantial. Um, so just to note that, that that's why some parents do it is because it can have that immediate reward for that that action from them. All right, so the next section is foods and eating. So babies eat what their mother eats when they're in the womb. And 
then again, partially this occurs again during breastfeeding through the breast milk. So they grow to prefer their mother's yep. food preferences at first. Um, and although it's common for babies to prefer sweet and fatty things, they may also enjoy spicy or bitter things um, as well. Yep. Um, some considerations for young and single mothers. A, a young girl who is maybe not financially well-supported, who may not have a lot of family or other emotional support, and is often unlikely to have very much education or income opportunities, is more likely to have a baby with problems due to a lack of a supportive environment. They won't necessarily know what to do um, and may be unable to meet the needs of, uh, of a baby. And so there are some interesting statistics. Again, these are complicated, multi-factor sort of things, but it does tend to be the case that up to 35% of children who come from, I guess, poor, but I, what I really mean by this is not financially supported, not well-educated single mothers, um, up to 35% of those children end up being arrested on average. It's crazy. Yeah, it's a large percentage. So there's this there are those, these programs that have a, been implemented. One of them is a nurse-family partnership. And in this, a medical professional provides a lot of guidance and support to these new mothers and does so for free. This is just a support network. Actually, they do get paid, but they are not paid by the mothers. They're paid from often a grant or some kind of foundation that does yeah. this. Uh, mothers who receive this kind of support end up being better adjusted. Uh, they often will wait longer and have their next child. Uh, they tend to make more money, and they're less likely to be abusive or have children who um, end up in that that system we mentioned is being arrested or falling into that sort of cycle. Less than half as many of the children were uh, ended up being arrested, so that 35% drops down to um, 17% or less. And the return on investment investment from this is really important. There was a savings of 223% of money spent on the program um, as would have been spent on the law enforcement damages and dealing with that situation um, by, by simply providing that amount of those like grants and funding for those support networks it was like for every dollar spent gains you know two dollars and 23 cents essentially in money saved down the road so this is this is a long-term investment that really pays out yeah it's hard to to realize those connections and figure that out sometimes but that's so crucial yep so the last point here is that crying brings parents attention and food. And it's in these stressful times that love and support and nurturing are of the utmost importance here. Yeah, it's just understanding that when babies cry, there's this whole thing about like let them cry it out sort of thing, which suggests that most of the time these babies and infants cry because they want attention or because they have some motive that's inappropriate. Most of the time when they're crying, they're crying for a very important reason because they don't have another way of communicating. And that is the way that evolution has more or less provided a tool for humans to communicate is this cry and response. It gets their attention. It gets them the things that they need. So it's understanding that, especially initially and before they have better communicative response, and even often afterward, um, when young children and especially babies are crying, this is a their only form of communicating the things that they need um, and that they're not doing it's to like annoy their parents or because they're ornery or grumpy or whatever. It's something that needs to be attended to. So this, the suggestion is not to ignore that behavior. All right. So that wraps us up as to the points here. Do we have any take home points before listener mail? Oh, great question. I mean, I think the general summary here is that 
there is, I mean, there's a lot that can go on with birth. A cesarean section is not necessarily recommended um, in, unless there are very specific circumstances. Um, it might be if you've already had one. It's actually likely to be recommended if you've already had a cesarean. Otherwise, vaginal birth is generally recommended. It just generally results in fewer complications. A doula can really help facilitate the process of leading up to birth. And so that might be something to keep in mind. And... That's sort of what I have on the birth part of this. Do you have anything else you think would be important to just recap on birth? No, I mean it's it's complicated and it's un it's unreal. Um, I think the biggest thing is uh, here's a lot of information that we just shared. Right, you can listen to it back, um, but go to your doctor if you have any sort of questions or concerns. Yeah, and then I think just going back to um, look out for not gaining weight or gaining too much weight, and um, just keep those considerations around the sleep situation in terms of what makes the most sense for your family. Again, consult your doctor. You know, read some books, find some information. We're just sort of providing the information without trying to really weigh in, and um, I guess that's kind of it. That's it. So cool. let's jump into listener mail. Ready? Sweet. Yep. So I'll read it and then uh, you can comment. Sound good? Sounds good. So this is from Dot. As someone who has actively worked since childhood on improving her mental health, I just want to say it means a lot to people like me, um, parentheses, that is people who aren't perfect, so I guess everyone, that thought leaders like you ensure that there are websites where people can discreetly go learn more about mental health. Whether we are wondering if we need professional help, want to learn more about a condition we've been diagnosed with, or just want to understand what mental health is, a lot of us count on websites like yours by trusted people like yourself for help. So thank you. And uh, I would say real quick, thank you as well. To continue with her quote, one thing I've learned on my mental health journey is that there are a lot of things that we can do at home to better our mental health, no matter what condition we may have. Parentheses, I personally have depression and generalized anxiety disorder. I've been pulling together some information on great at-home techniques for boosting our emotional wellness. Here is some of what I've found in case you'd like to add it to your website. End quote. Yeah, she provided a whole bunch of links that are going to be in the uh, the links for this episode if people are interested. Um, you know, I realize now, and this will come out after, uh, it's a little too late, but we missed an opportunity to really recognize and celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month, which is the month of May. Um, so this, this comes right on the heels of that. Um, if anybody is interested in more resources for mental health, she provided several. Um, we did not vet all of these but you know thought it was really kind of her to provide those things that she found useful for herself so just wanted to pass those along um we're not vouching for the quality of those websites at this time just to say that if you're interested in looking those up those will be in the show notes yeah all right i think that's it anything else abraham i think that's it thank you so much for uh, recording with me today thank you so much for listening and i think that's all i got yeah go check out our patreon page if you don't mind um this is ryan o and this is abraham we're out listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. 
Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. They already were in the womb, but it accelerates tremendously after birth. So accelerates and accelerates. <laughs> and did I say accelerates? All right. I'm just yeah. gonna redo all this. So the brain is the fastest developing organ. Oregon. Beep. So the brain is the fastest developing. <laughs> <laughs>